Thank you so much. I mean, I can only imagine your world is a little busy right now. And you know, it's you- it's kind of crazy and kind of not. I mean, right after an election, there's a sort of a lull where you, you know, your adrenaline's still running and everything else has calmed down a little bit. Uh, we're all doing the same thing everybody else is, you know, hitting hitting refresh, refresh, refresh to see what Arizona, Nevada, Georgia have done. I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be bringing you uh, a friend of mine who is uh, also a a very timely guest on this show uh, because we are recording this two days after the November 3rd uh, election, and it is Ross Ramsey, executive editor and co-founder of the Texas Tribune. Ross, thank you so much for being on my show and uh, being so flexible and working with me so quickly. I'm flattered that you asked me. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited about this conversation. I just think you probably have a wonderful perspective uh, to share with our listeners that, you know, for folks, especially especially for folks who don't kind of like just live and breathe this stuff like some of us do, certainly like you do, uh, and just give us an overview uh, we're really going to focus on Texas because we don't know what's going on with the national right now. It, right, you know, right. maybe by the time this airs on Sunday, we will, um, or maybe before this uh, interview is over. Who knows? But give us just a uh, tell us a little bit about yourself first. I was born in Amarillo, Texas. Yeah, grew up mostly, uh, grew up mostly in El Paso, Texas. And went to school in Denton, worked in Dallas media for a while, and the now defunct Dallas Times-Herald moved me to Austin in 1989, and I've been covering politics down here since then. I was mostly a business writer before that, and, you know, uh, worked for the Times-Herald here, the Houston Chronicle, uh, did a couple of years on the other side working for uh, then-controller John Sharp at the controller's office for two and a half years, and then bought a political newsletter called Texas Weekly about 11 years ago, uh, in fact, 11 years ago this week, we started the Texas Tribune. Evan Smith and John Thornton and I founded it, folded Texas Weekly into that. And it's now the largest state house bureau of any kind in any state in the United States. And it's a nonprofit. Uh, We've been going, like I said, for 11 years. Uh, It's a member-supported news organization. So that's where we're writing from now. Well, at a time when uh, local media is really dying out as far as newspapers and and just, you know, a central resource, centralized repository of information, I can guarantee you that the Texas Tribune is filling void for a lot of us that if we didn't have you, I don't know what we'd do. Um, so thank you for the work that you and Evan and everybody there do, because it's really, really important for keeping up to date uh, with not just our legislature, but things going on in the state. And we really appreciate the work that you do. And if you're not a member, I would encourage you to go become a member of the Texas Tribune. I'm a member. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. Let's talk about, okay, we're talking politics right now and, and elections. Give us an overview of the Texas political landscape from just kind of historically and kind of where it is today. Uh, you know, the whole time I've been covering Texas politics, the last 40 years or so, uh, and, you know, reading history before that, this has always been a conservative state. 
it was a conservative democratic state. You know, the old line when I started as a political reporter was, uh, these are Texas Democrats in any other state, they'd be Republicans. In the same way that people from New York used to introduce people like Nelson Rockefeller, this is a New York Republican, anywhere else they'd be Democrats. Um, it's, but uh, Texas has always been a conservative state. In the 80s and definitely into the 90s, the Democrats' hold on things was cracking and finally got completely busted by the Republicans in 1996. 1994 uh, was the last time that any Democrats won statewide elections in Texas. And that holds true through what happened on Tuesday of this year. And the Texas Senate went, I'd had to look up the year, but the Texas Senate became a Republican majority in the mid to late 90s. The Texas House did that in 2000, after the 2002 elections. And so the Republicans have a real hold on Texas government and Texas politics. But just like the Democrats before them, that masks all the differences. So it's like one big family. And if you get your big family together at Thanksgiving, you know that, you know, this uncle doesn't get along with that uncle. And, you know, there's a lot of that going on in the Republican Party. So we still write about partisan politics, even in a one party state, in part because there are one or two or three different parties inside the Republican Party. And in part because the Democrats have a minority in both the House and the Senate, but it's a significant enough minority that they can, if the Republicans aren't paying attention, turn the table on partisan issues. And then in Texas, most of the issues in the legislature are not actually partisan. You know, if you're voting on a low water crossing or a highway extension or something in the prison system, you'll often as not find a bipartisan coalition together. So you know, I would say that the state remains relatively conservative, uh, certainly compared with other parts of the country. After Tuesday, you have to say it also remains red. So let's talk about the, the just the election system in Texas. So the primaries often decide the races. Right, uh, you know, or the or the outcome of the races. There, there may be a November election afterwards, but certainly in our part of the state, far too often the primaries are what decide the outcomes, and then you have your your November elections. But this year, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Texas turning blue, and let's let's talk Texas turning blue before Tuesday, and the hopes and dreams of that for those who who were really trying to get the state to turn more blue? Uh, you know, the Democrats were really enthusiastic. Uh, they've been making some inroads a little bit every time. So they made some progress in 2016. 2014, they had a really bad year. Wendy Davis got beat really badly by uh, Greg Abbott. The Democrats raised a bunch of money for that election, raised a lot of people's hopes. And the Republicans just ran over them in 2014. In 2016 and 2018, they made some of their way back. And the way that you saw that primarily was in gains in their numbers in the House and the Senate. Um, and in particular, in 2018, behind the, um, the Beto O'Rourke, Ted Cruz whirlwind at the top of the ballot, 12 Democrats took seats away from Republicans in the 2018 election. It's pretty common for a president of either party to have kind of a lousy time in their first midterm election. 
for Barack Obama, that was the 2010 Tea Party election. For Donald Trump, it was 2018. And Republicans had a bad night, you know, kind of all over the place, including in Texas in 2018. The Democrats picked up 12 seats. They came out of that very exuberant. The Republicans were a little bit chastened by that. And we came into this cycle kind of on the on that momentum. The Democrats pretty much sold the idea to their donors, to their supporters, and to a lot of others uh, that they were going to pick up the nine seats that they still needed to get a majority in the Texas House. They raised a terrific amount of money all over the country for that cause, which is unusual for mid-ballot races. You know, it would be like somebody coming to Amarillo and saying, I need money to support somebody for the North Dakota House. You know, you would say, well, I got my own house to clean up. But because it's a redistricting year in 2021 and the Republicans saw a chance to get a thumb on the scale in Texas if they could win Democratic control of the House, millions and millions of dollars poured into House races. This all built up a bunch of expectations, a bunch of apparent momentum, mostly hype, as it turned out, because as we found out on Tuesday, uh, the Democrats not only didn't win nine seats, they didn't win any seats. We came out with a net zero. One Republican, Sarah Davis in Houston, lost her seat, but one Democrat, Gina Kalani in Houston, lost her seat. So it's still 83 Republicans, 67 Democrats. And as we write this, or as we tape this, the, um, the votes haven't been certified yet. So there may be some wiggles. There were a couple of races where only a couple of hundred votes separated people. Some of that might settle you know, one way or the other. But essentially, it's unchanged. And it's not out of the question that Texas would turn blue because the dem the demographic shifts have been changing and growing uh, over the past 30 years, uh, certainly past 20 years a lot, and that Texas is becoming more heavily Hispanic. Typically, that tends more Democratic. Those votes tend more Democratic. But that didn't really happen, and that didn't even happen really along the border this time. Yeah, there were a couple of things that were interesting this time. The, the shift in Texas, I, you know, I think saying Texas is turning blue is a bit of a misnomer. Um, and the, you know, I think what you can say looking at the last several cycles is that Texas is becoming a much more competitive state. The Democrats aren't winning elections. We don't have a blue government all of a sudden. In fact, we've still got a pretty red government. You know, they've got all the houses, they've got all the judiciary, they've got you know, all, all the things, right? But you've got these incredibly close races in some cases. In the 2018 races, not only did you have a Senate race in Texas decided by less than three percentage points, um, Greg Abbott did pretty well in his race, but Dan Patrick, the Lieutenant Governor, Ken Paxton, the Attorney General, and Sid Miller, the Agriculture Commissioner, all got, um, their opponents got close enough to, to scare them pretty good. It's a competitive state, and it didn't used to be. That Wendy Davis-Greg Abbott race back in 2014 was a 20-point race. The presidential race this time was a six-point race. I think it's the closest one in Texas since 1996 when Bob Dole beat Bill Clinton uh, with Ross Perot also on the ballot. So you had a Texan on the ballot, and that margin was a little bit skinnier. But no Democrat has won a presidential race in Texas since 1976 when Jimmy Carter beat Gerald Ford here. So the state's become more competitive. It hasn't become blue.
can a Democrat win a statewide race? I think so, if everything goes right. You know, you've got a couple of things going on. I think in, in this particular race, you know, the last close race was Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. And those are both charismatic politicians. They're both, they both have big followings. They both have significant numbers of people on the other side who kind of give them the one finger salute on a regular basis. And it was the kind of race where the personalities were big, the money was big, the stakes were big. It was just a great race. If you look at this race, it's a little bit different. You have a charismatic on one side. Donald Trump is, you know, attractive or repellent in large numbers in a, in a way that only the most charismatic candidates are. His opponents really don't like him. His supporters really like him. You know, so you've got the makings of a race there. You had another charismatic when he ran against Hillary Clinton. Same kind of thing. But in Joe Biden, you don't really have that. And you saw a lot of the Democratic electorate that the Democrats rely on to win these races not get excited like they did in the Beto race or in the Clinton race. And the biggest evidence of that, I think, is in South Texas, where you saw some bigger numbers and turnout like we saw all over the state, but not as big and not nearly as enthusiastically Democrat. Joe Biden was racking up wins down there in the places where he won by much smaller percentages than Hillary Clinton did four years ago. And there were a couple of counties down there that every time you look at a map of Texas after an election are blue, that this time were red. Val Verde County was red. You know, I looked at the map twice. I asked one of our data people, is this right? You know, when I was first looking at it. But it turned out that the Democrats didn't really excite that part of their electorate, you know, and I think that probably the Biden campaign was looking outside of Texas for their wins. So I'm not sure that they were as worried about it, but I do know that the Texans who were running down ballot from there, including the Democrats trying to win the Texas House, were really disappointed with the way some of those numbers went. Let's talk about the down ballot elections, because for the first time, you couldn't vote straight party on the ticket this this right. election. How right. did that impact uh, the the down ballot races? I think, you know, it still worked. You know, I think a lot of Republicans are probably glad that it wasn't a straight ticket race because there were places where, you know, if you look at the overall numbers, Donald Trump beat Joe Biden in Texas. But if you look at a at those numbers on an individual district level, there's going to be some some places where you're in a Democratic House district. Joe Biden did pretty well. And if the numbers had been better, it would have accrued to the benefit not only of the person running in that district, but maybe to somebody running in a congressional seat that overlaid it or something like that. So I think in some ways, the Republicans who were saved by that and the Democrats who were hurt by that were all, you know, all had a pretty solid opinion about the lack of straight ticket voting this time. One of the things we did notice this year was that Donald Trump and Joe Biden were at the top of the ticket and it was a six point race. John Cornyn won by about 10 points over MJ Hagar. And if you look at the other statewide races, this would be Railroad Commission, three seats on the Texas Supreme Court, three seats on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. All of those were between nine and 11 points. So there's a pretty strong Republican line through there. And it really looked like a straight ticket vote. And as you went down the ballot, you know, that Republican tendency prevailed statewide all the way down the ballot. Hmm. Wow. What message do the results of this election send to each party? For you know, Texas? I think this was, 
Yeah, I think it was a stay the course election in Texas. I think, you know, if you're a legislator from either party, you look at this and say, you know, Texans basically voted for what they already had. The state offices, the top offices like governor and lieutenant governor and attorney general weren't on the ballot this time. So you look at this as, you know, I look at this as really kind of two elections in one. One of them was a presidential election. And it was clear that the Republican president didn't do as well in Texas as the other Republicans on the statewide ticket, but well enough to win. So Donald Trump is still the most popular, was the most popular choice of Texans overall, but not to the same extent that John Cornyn was. So, So that raises this interesting possibility that we noticed two years ago, too. There is something that a beast that we didn't know about called a Joe Biden, John Cornyn voter. That's the only way that math works. In the same way that a couple of years ago, there was such a thing as a Beto O'Rourke, Greg Abbott voter. So there's some ticket splitting going on. You know, people in Texas aren't just pulling the lever for the Republican Party or for the Democratic Party. They're looking at the races and saying, I like this guy. I don't like that guy. I like this one. I don't like that one. And if I don't really have a preference, then I'm a party voter. So, you know, but I think the takeaway message from this election is more or less keep doing what you're doing, at least in Texas. Well, in the last legislative session, several last legislative sessions, they've typically worked together, the the two different parties, a little bit more than they had, say, 10 or 15 years ago. It's, It's always been the case in Texas that a Republican speaker names Republican and Democratic committee chairs. You know, we're not a split system like Washington where it's a winner take all. It's one of those winner take some things or winner take most states. But, you know, like I, you know, I, I, I tell people who aren't up here all the time, most of the votes in the Texas House are not on partisan issues. And you've got to get your 76 votes, your majority, wherever you can. And that involves everybody in the House, not just the members of your own party. So what, what do you see going into session with this, this, these outcomes? And of course, I'm talking Texas. Right. I think we've got a really serious sort of practical session in front of us because the issue set kind of describes that. You can go into some sessions and you can say, this is going to be real political. We're going to do something like the bathroom bill that they did a few years ago. And we're going to, you know, we're going to burn a lot of tires on that thing. And we did. That was a, an issue that ate a whole legislative session for better or for worse. This time we have a bunch of really serious issues that the legislature can't ignore. They're going to come into a really, really tough budget. Uh, The pandemic has left the economy pretty tattered in some places, along with the crunch in the oil field and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so state revenues are down. So the first thing is they've got to find four or $5 billion to balance the current budget because of, you know, the crunch in the economy right now. And as soon as they do that, they've got to turn around and write another two-year budget that's going to reflect the economy going forward. The controller, Glenn Hager, hasn't said yet, here's how much money you're going to have for, the next, for that two-year budget. He'll do that in December or January. But we are all expecting that number to be low and for the legislature to come in and say, we're either going to have to cut something or we're going to have to find a new pot of money somewhere. If they cut something, the two biggest parts of the state budget are public education, public and higher education on one hand, and health and human services on the other. They just made a bunch of promises to Texans about public education in 2019, 
And it's difficult to cut health and human services anytime, but particularly in a pandemic yeah. when you're leaning on that stuff. So they've got a bunch of really, you know, tough work to do there. So that's the that's the recession and the state budget. You've still got a lot of stuff to do on the pandemic. There are a lot of things that the state needs to do on pandemic response. We're still in this thing. We still have a lot of things that need to be set up. And there's a fair amount of grousing in Texas, both from Republicans and Democrats uh, in the legislature, about how much of what we've done in response to this has been kind of a one-man act uh, on behalf of Governor Greg Abbott. He's used his emergency powers to say everything from do or don't wear a mask here to do or don't open these businesses. All of those kinds of things are going to be in question by the legislature. So the pandemic response, who's responsible for it, whether the governor has the powers he wants. We had a summer of protests to some extent in Texas, certainly all over the country, about social and racial justice, about uh, police behavior. There are a bunch of issues coming out of that. One of the regular themes for Republicans in this election was about law enforcement and backing the blue and supporting police. I think all of that conversation is going to show up in the form of legislation some way or another. And you'll see bills that reflect all the sides of that argument, whether it's you know, we should put more money in policing, we should redirect police money, we should defund police, we should do this, we should do that. That's going to be one of the running conversations. And then we've got a bunch of, you know, there were all these lawsuits over how do we vote in Texas? How do we register to vote? Can we vote by mail? All of that stuff that you've been reading about all the litigation about, you know, for the last several months is going to show up here in the next week or so in the form of bill filings. You know, somebody's going to file a bill that says we have to have universal vote by mail or we have to have same day voter registration or, you know, this, that and the other thing. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. All of that would be enough, except that this is a redistricting year. If you go back to what we were talking about with, you know, all the money in the election and redistricting is one of those things where, you know, it's it's really important. It's particularly important to politicians. And it's a major distraction for members of the legislature because you're asking them to draw the political maps from which they are elected. And it is literally a process where the elected people choose which voters they want in their districts the next time. And it gets down to a house by house, street by street level on those maps. It's a big distraction. It's a big, very partisan fight. And they're under a lot of political pressure from all sides. You know, you've got local issues, you've got state issues, you have party issues, you have everybody in Congress trying to tell you what to do. So all of those things are the really kind of serious things of a state legislature and not the things that, you know, they might do for this or that political cause or this or that political fad of a particular moment. And I think this is going to be a real nuts and bolts session. Will they get the numbers in time to do redistricting, do you think? Well, you know, there's a question here because the pandemic delayed the census. So that delays the report and that delays when the report can be made to the legislature. There's a weird legal thing going on here. I am not a lawyer, so this is not advice. But I will say if the Texas legislature doesn't get the new census numbers in time to draw maps in this regular session, then they're going to have to come back in a special session to draw those maps. There's a special board called the Legislative Redistricting Board. 
that if you had a normal calendar working here, you would come in in January, somewhere time around late March or early April, the census would deliver numbers. The legislature would draw districts for the House, the Senate, the State Board of Education, and the congressional delegation. And if they failed to do that, if either the House or the Senate couldn't come to agreement with each other or the governor vetoed it, the congressional maps would go to the courts for drawing and the courts might tell the legislature come back together and draw or whatever. But the legislative maps would go to this legislative redistricting board, which has, um, which will have five Republicans on it. That'll be the lieutenant governor, the speaker, the attorney general, the controller, and the land commissioner. So if you're a Democrat, that's like the worst outcome ever. You're going to draw a map in the legislature or it's going to be drawn by Republicans. And that's what they were fighting about in this election. The other thing that could happen here, though, is if the census is late and it because of that, the legislature actually can't draw the maps during a regular session, then the trigger for starting that legislative redistricting board gets delayed a couple of years. And the legislature has to come back in special sessions and their maps, if they can't agree to them, go straight to the courts instead of to this panel of Republicans. And then we've got a summer and a next autumn full of court battles over redistricting and political maps and, you know, kind of a cats and dogs kerfluffle the whole, you know, through the next year or so. So my podcast is called Annette on Education, and it was through education and being on the school board that I got involved and interested in, reluctantly, in politics. So you can't talk politics, you can't talk education uh, anywhere, but certainly in Texas without talking politics and talking legislative issues, policy, all that. And as you've already mentioned, it's a huge uh, chunk of the budget. They've already promised something to to the K-12. Uh, certainly, I'm currently on a community college board. We don't, we don't want any reduction. We understand that there's challenges. But my goodness, the challenges that our schools have faced, our colleges have faced in trying to serve our students and meet the needs of our of our families, of our students. And it's also uh, shown the huge digital divide that we have in our society. So, you know, will, will they address that? Do you think at all? You know, they've got to do something here in the 2019 session. You're well aware in the 2019 session, the legislature said in a very broad way that the state was going to assume a greater share of the financial load for public education in Texas property taxes are rising very quickly. The state's share of the cost of public education had been falling steadily for years. And they basically committed to a new structure uh, that um, was at least rhetorically designed to put more state money into the system and rely, you know, a little bit less reliance on local funding and local property taxes. So they kind of signed up for an obligation that they haven't been making in previous years. And they knew before we ever talked about a pandemic or a recession, that they would be coming into a 2021 legislative session with new obligations on public education and a lot of questions about how to finance those obligations, whether we needed new sources of revenue, whether we needed to cut other parts of the budget. This was the rosy outlook before the pandemic, that, you know, this was going to be a tough budget. And now they've got a pandemic and they've got a recession that came with it. And it's going to be a much, much tougher budget. 
with not only the new obligations of public education, the old obligations they have and everything else, and less money to attack it with. So there's a lot in the air here on education. We know from uh, the previous big dip in the economy, the big de uh, depression or recession or whatever you want to call it, it following 2008, and a big budget cut in the Texas legislature in the 2011 legislative session, that Texas voters don't like big cuts in public education. I believe the cuts at that time were on the order of five and a half billion dollars. They never really got fully refunded. And so you've got this, you know, you, you finally have state spending up around the level that it was before those cuts, but you also have, you know, eight or nine years between those cuts and the, and the repair to those cuts where you sort of, you know, you've got a whole, co a whole cohort of students in there. So they're coming back and they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, so we have these obligations to public schools. We now have a lot of kids that aren't even in public schools. We have a lot of kids, rural and even urban, who don't have access to or the ability to get to the internet, which is where their math class is and where their English class is and where all of this stuff is being taught now. And so we've got a, a bunch of existing problems that have been with us as long as we've had public education some new obligations from the 2019 legislative session, and now all of the stuff that COVID has lumped on us. So we're doing this, we're gonna have math class at the dining room table. You're gonna be signed on to the internet if you can get it. You're gonna be using your computer, if you have one, to get on it. There are a bunch of new problems and this legislature is going to see you know, a laundry list of things from public educators saying, you know, no politics here, but hey, look, this is what we need to get our job done. What do you think? And it's a it's a huge problem. It's it's a huge challenge, and I'm not sure there's any right answer for for the decisions that we're all having to make as educational leaders. Uh, because to somebody, any any decision's wrong. Uh, certainly for our legislators, they know that too. So. Stepping back and just looking at the longer arc of the future of Texas, reflect on how this year, the COVID year 2020, and I, I started and ran an organization called Panhandle 2020 almost 20 years ago. Now, if I'd have known what 2020 was going to be, I might have <laughs> asked a few different questions. But been there, you know, but our huge focus areas were educational attainment and access and the challenges of poverty and moving folks out of poverty. Uh, you know, I personally think we're going to have more of those challenges. What do you see? What do you see for Texas over the next 10 years because of 2020? You know, the first thing I would say is you've got a, a, a bunch of kids, five and a half. I think it's five and a half to 5.7 million kids right now in public, yeah. public schools in Texas. And whatever you can say about this, it's been disruptive as all get out. And yep. you've lost probably a year of education. Some of these kids, you know, education is, you know, this is like a river. And, you know, you've got to grab every kid while they're there. You can't say we're going to fix this in two years because it doesn't help the kid that's in front of you right now. You've got a bunch of kids in front of you, figuratively speaking right now, all over the state of Texas, who are getting an inferior version, arguably, of the education that they were getting a year ago. And 
you know, it may be that we figure out, you know, some things work just as well online as in person. Um, some things clearly don't. But in the time that we're figuring it out, we're uh, in great danger of losing time with these kids and losing really critical educational building blocks with kids. And that's going to ripple all the way through their lives. You know, if you're, if you're getting a if you're developing a reading problem because of the delivery of public education right now, you've got a reading problem for life. You know, you've got to, you have to figure out how to catch those things. You have to figure out how to make up this time and how to make up what we haven't delivered to these students. And it's not just out of goodwill for the students. This is the next economic force in the state. These are kids who are, you know, to use the old Phil Graham phrase, either going to be in the wagon or pulling the wagon. And, you know, you, the whole purpose of public education is, you know, to bring everybody along, to make them self-sufficient uh, economically, intellectually, all of those kinds of things. And there's a grave danger right now to all of that. And I think, you know, that's pretty uniformly understood with all of the politicians that I've talked to in state government. But it's a really big problem. And it's a really hard thing to, that's a hard nut to crack. And I, I think that's going to be a big problem right now. I think it's going to be a big problem for the next 10 or 12 years. You know, eventually you're going to come to a point where you say, are these kids college ready? Are, um, are we going to have to do some remediation to take care of what happened this year to the third graders, you know, somewhere eight or 10 years down the road? There's a million questions like that. Uh, business tends to come back together pretty quickly. You know, business is pretty, the economy, at least on a workaday level, is resilient. A lot of businesses are going out of business right now. And I'm not, you know, certainly not making light of that. But when you get the economy kind of snapped back in and you get um, people um, with dealing with a pandemic where they can go out, where they can do some of the things that they did before the pandemic again, I think that the economy will snap back relatively quickly and people will be able to put that back together. But, you know, really my biggest, you know, kind of my eyes, and it's, it's partly because of what we've been talking about on a day-to-day -day basis here in Austin is really on the kids in education. Yep. Yep. Challenges ahead, but that creates opportunities. And I hope we live up to them as a state and as educational leaders and such. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of an optimist. I always, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking both in education and government, business, all of those things, sort of the COVID innovations. You know, there are going to be yep. some things that never change in the same way that, you know, after 9-11, we never are going to, you know, airports are forever different. You know, we've gotten used to it, but, you know, those lines didn't used to be there. Um, yeah. There are going to be some things that change because of this, and there's going to be some innovation of coming out of this. There are going to be some things that we were unable to do before COVID that because of COVID we were forced to do, and we kind of go, yeah, that's actually a pretty good idea. And I'm, I'm really anxious to see what some of those are. Well, some of those include some of the Texas Tribune events. I mean, last week you had a daily hour-long uh, interview or panels on higher ed. This coming week, uh, starting November 9th, it's on rural, the state of rural Texas, correct? Right, right. So, uh, right. you know, there's, and that's all archived on your website for folks to go see. And it's, it's a great resource and a great service to the state. Yep. Yeah, we may be, may be doing our own versions of Hollywood Squares with these little Zoom calls and things for a long time in the future. It's going to change travel forever. Oh, yeah. You know, they're, they're, you know, 
I'm I'm fascinated. You know, some of it's scary, but some of it's actually kind of innovative and fun. And I'm I'm anxious to see how it goes. Well, is there anything else our listeners need to learn from you? You know, I think this legislative session is going to be really interesting. And I think it's going to be, you know, everybody has had to reset their lives and refigure out how they're doing these things. One of the things the legislature has to figure out is, you know, the state capitol is basically a giant, busy fire ant mound. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a social network. It's people in hallways and committee rooms whispering to each other. All of this kind of stuff that is probably a really lousy idea during a pandemic. And they're trying to figure out how to meet. They've got that list of issues that we talked about that they have to deal with. And that would be hard enough under normal circumstances. We're not going to be in normal circumstances. Are they going to be able to allow free public access to the capital that's always been a given in state government while they're considering things that affect all of our lives? Probably not. They're going to have to figure that out. So there are a million questions. I think this is going to continue to be a peculiar time in our lives. And, you know, like I said, I'm an optimist. We'll get through it. But it's going to be very interesting till we do. Ross, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, your knowledge base. And uh, keep reading the Texas Tribune because there's a lot of great information uh, around all this. Uh, it's, It's certainly a wonderful resource for me. Thanks again for being on here. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education.